This is All of the Land. Good morning. I'm Maria J. Brown Marshall. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we are in the month. That's when 20 and odd Negroes, as John Rolfe put it, arrived in the colony of Virginia in 1619, August of 1619. I am on a speaking tour traveling around the country, and I'll say the world since I was in Paris in June, talking about the 400th. I hope that you will have a 400th event commemorating the ancestors through 400 years of perseverance. And, of course, you don't have to be of African descent to participate. As a matter of fact, I was in Martha's Vineyard, where I am right now, and that speaking engagement was a very diverse audience of people who not only want to know the 400, but they want to actually support the efforts. The 400 years of perseverance, for that perseverance to take place, that meant people of African descent had to have allies. As I like to say, we, African Americans, are worthy allies, speaking worthy allies. And we find them in so many different places. So if you want a 400th event, all you have to do is add it to your family reunion, your gathering, or any other event you already have in progress. Or you can decide to have one of your own. It could be a lecture. It could be a speaking engagement. It could be a coming together. So how about a, a food event where different types of food are brought together? I would also say, please put it on the Asala calendar. Association for the Study of African American Life and History, A-S-A-L-H dot org. A-S-A-L-H dot org. The Association for the Study of African American Life and History is an organization that was started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the same man who brought us Black History Month and, of course, the book, The Miseducation of the Negro, that must be read by one and all. So at this point, I want to go to the issue of voting. And this is a core issue that, of course, we're going to be discussing for the next year or so, and for a very good reason. Before the 2016 election, I had many people on my program discussing the importance of that election. We also found out, of course, that there was tampering with the election by the Russians and that there was also the voter suppression issues, as well as the issues of apathy as we left the Obama two-year term and went into a possible term by Hillary Clinton or others. We know what we got. <laughs> we know what we received through apathy, through misinformation, and through this sense that we didn't have to really go into that booth and make our voice counted. Well, let's go back and use this encore show of Law of the Land to talk with Andrew Young, former ambassador, about voting, going into that 2016 election, and listen to some of the same issues, the same concerns, but now we know they're at a heightened level given where we are going into 2020. We cannot afford to have the blinders on. We must now step up our game, and not just for ourselves, for our families, for our communities. We need to understand where we were. And this also touches on the fact that in this year, for this encore presentation, there was the march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the reenactment from in 2015, in March of 2015, that bloody Sunday in 1965, 
when so much had taken place in front of everybody on live television, the brutal beating of those peaceful marchers going across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. In Selma, Alabama, where we thought back then that this, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, would change so much, and it did until 2013, when the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice John Roberts, who as an attorney had come up with forces and strategies to undermine the Voting Rights Act, and that's why he was their favorite child to ascend to the high court, because he would be the one that would then be the gutter of the, the Voting Rights Act provisions that would protect the rights of many people of color to vote. And with the gutting of the provisions, the Preclearance Act of the Voting Rights Act in June of 2013, it was an open field. Couple that with United, which allowed money to flow into these elections, we are in the situation in which, at this point in time, reflect on where we were before to better understand how this process has been working step by step to disenable our voting, to disenfranchise us. And if we are not alert, if we don't pick up our game, it could happen again. I give you the Encore program with Andrew Young and an author from what will be reinstated, Gloria's book list, into the future. But let's first think about what happened in our recent past. Very exciting show for you today. The program, as I said, is going to focus on civil rights strategies then and now. And the cost. And our guest coming up will be um, Dr. Thomas Bynum, a professor. And he will be discussing his book during Gloria's book list. And that is at 1030. And he is going to be talking about the youth in the NAACP. Sometimes we look at the NAACP today and we go, mm, I don't know if it's connected with the young movement of Black Lives Matter, etc. But we're going to talk about there was a time when it was. But we also have a very, very special guest with us today. So unique. And that is for our discussion around civil rights then, the Honorable Andrew Young. Yes, the Andrew Young, the Ambassador Andrew Young, the Mayor of Atlanta Andrew Young. Yes, that's the Andrew Young we will have on this program at 11 o'clock, who will be able to guide us and tell us the person who worked with Martin Luther King. Yes, that's Andrew Young. Yes, we need to understand from those who can give us insights on civil rights then and now to better understand the strategies we need to go forward. Because right now, we're in a difficult place. We can see the onslaught of those who are attempting to take our rights or limit our rights, but we don't feel the need, the power, to come together and work. So we're going to um, discuss all of those things, and we're going to have a psychologist on the program at the end to talk to us about what do we do with all these feelings that we have when we feel that we're the object of discrimination and we want to do our best, but we have all these things coming at us. That is a power-packed program, and you're getting it here on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall and WBAI 99.5 FM. Thank you for continuing this 
march and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. Is that clear to you? I've got nothing further to say to you. could remember was outburst of tear gas and I saw people being beaten and I began to just try to run home as fast as I could and as I began to run home I saw horses behind me and I, I will never forget a freedom fighter picked me up Hosea Williams and I told him to put me down he wasn't running fast enough and I ran, and I ran, and I ran. We were about two blocks away from the bridge, and we went back to try to help people back. But the police were riding along on horseback, beating people. Uh, and the tear gas was so thick, you couldn't get uh, to where people were, were in, in need of help. And that was Andy Young speaking. I want to let you understand help you to understand. Hundreds of people were beaten by Alabama state troopers on that bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, as they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in a peaceful protest to gain their right to vote. This is the sacrifice. This is the story. It's a very American story as American as the colonists who fought Great Britain, as American as any American story is the one of African Americans and other people of color fighting for their right to vote. Once again, another excerpt from our upcoming guest, Andy Young. There were people who came back to the church and started talking about going to get their guns. Uh, you had to talk them down. Uh, and you had to talk them down by simply asking questions, what kind of gun you got? Uh, 32, 38, 
How's that going to hold up against the automatic rifles and 10-gauge shotguns that they've got? And how many you got? Are there at least 200, you know, shotguns out there with buckshot in them? You ever see buckshot? You ever see what buckshot does to a deer? You know, and most of them had. And you make people think about the specifics of violence, and then they realize how suicidal and nonsensical it is. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We're talking about civil rights strategies then and now. Our upcoming guest is the Honorable Ambassador Andrew Young, and he will be with us in a few moments. We're very excited. This show is one in which hopefully you will be able to be inspired and you will go forward and be a part of the social change we've all been waiting for. Found in jail, had no money for the gold base. But keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on, hold on, A senior aide to Martin Luther King in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a congressman, mayor, ambassador. We're talking about Andrew Young. I want you to hear this one clip before we have the Honorable Andrew Young on the line. I was trying to think when I started in the YMCA. I was somewhere around five or six years old. 
Now, that's more than 75 years ago. <laughs> and my mother was a secretary at an insurance company next to the Y. My daddy happened to be on the board of the Y, so I got dumped at the Y all day, every day in the summertime. It was sort of my home away from home. Key things in my life. It's where I learned to get along with all kinds of people. Well, I didn't think of myself as a leader, but I saw kids leaning on me even when I was 10 and 12 years old. Jimmy Carter sent me to the United Nations. It's amazing how much the skill set of getting along with a variety of rambunctious kids is very similar to the United Nations. <laughs> in fact, some of the kids that I had to deal with in camp were more intimidating than some of the leaders I had to deal with in countries around the world. I just find that my life has been shaped by my involvement with the YMCA. Our Y secretary, Bill Mitchell, was one of the founders, I think, of the Y in Liberia. Our Y operated like an honorary consulate for African students who were in the colleges around New Orleans. Both my brother and I ended up with a, a deep and abiding interest in Africa, largely because of the friendships and associations that we made at the Y and we continued in high school and in college and throughout life. As I get on in age, I find that this is the thing that keeps me going. The Y is still someplace where I come regularly. I find that I'm not only staying in good shape physically, but I run into kids who just need a word of encouragement. And that was the Honorable Andrew Young, Ambassador, Congressman, Mayor, who is on our program today. We're talking about civil rights strategies then and now and the use and need to understand the role of young people in those civil rights strategies. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador Young. Well, my pleasure. And we know that you've run the gamut of so many different experiences in this country and around the world. We thank you so much for joining us. And in our discussion of civil rights strategies then and now, we're, we're talking about the role of young people. And during your time period early on with um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, you were all so young relative to how we envision the role of leaders today. Can you talk with us a little bit about what it was to be young and in and those positions of leadership? Well, we were young, but we were old, too, because uh, in order to survive as a young person then, uh, it was extremely dangerous just being born black. And I grew up in a neighborhood with, with an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on another and the Nazi party headquarters on the third corner. And um, I had to learn to get along. I had to learn to, you know, to run, fight, or negotiate. <laughs> and But my father, you know, took a real effort in saying to me that you don't ever get mad that white supremacy is a sickness. And 
anybody that thinks that one group of people because of the color of their skin is different and better than another group of people because of the color of their skin is sick. And you don't get mad with sick people. You help them. Now, I was listening to you, uh, to that uh, introduction, and I don't know where you got it from, but it was very good and very true. But I, I was celebrating this morning uh, the kids in Missouri who were, for the first time in my knowledge, uh, an entire football team decided that they were not going to play football. Uh, and they weren't on their own. They had been dealing with this for over a year, and they had been thinking it through. The student government, there's a black student government president. Uh, they lived through all of the Ferguson uh, problems, which are not far from the University of Missouri. And so that was, that's one of the things I think is that's different, that um, no matter what the issue is, you have to take the time to think about it. And um, that um, I think Martin Luther King and I both read Gandhi in 1950, but it was 55 before he acted on it. And it was 61 before, well, I was, I was down in South Georgia uh, in 55, 56, uh, but I didn't join up with him until 1961, and I was about 30 then, 29. Uh, and uh, so we weren't all that young, and we had, all of us had children by that time. And we had been thinking about this and studying what we were going to do. Uh, well, Dr. King had his Ph.D. degree. And I think the difference in our movement was that it was a serious movement that spent a whole lot of time studying and planning and understanding the nature of the enemy we were opposing. And um, we never thought of ourselves as victims. We thought of ourselves as being in charge of redeeming the soul of America from the triple evils of race, war, and poverty. And I'm still trying to do that. Uh, more poverty than race and war right now. Because um, most of the things that we see as racial are really the result of, of poverty. And the fact that while we've made progress on race in many areas, uh, there's still more, a greater percentage of poor people in America now than there were in the 60s. And the rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, and the middle class is getting left behind or squeezed out. And so we've got a very difficult situation that we just can't look at as black and white. We've got to understand the nature of the world we're in, and we've got to realize that there are no simple answers. And white folk don't know the answers, and that's one of the reasons why they're afraid of us. And sometimes they shoot first in panic uh, and fear. Um, I heard a figure just the other day that, that you know, 
the leading cause of death in policemen is suicide. And so you don't want to provoke people who are already sick and already on edge. And uh, they require training. They require understanding. And as a mayor, I was able to do that. Uh, and we ended up with a police force that was about half and half black and white. But we made sure that a third of them were women, black women and white women, because women have a different approach to problems than men do. Um, Ambassador, when you talk about redeeming the, the soul of America and the three prongs, race, war, and poverty, we know that there have been laws, and this program, Law of the Land, discusses laws, but in, in the role of law, but we also want to uh, make sure that law has a human face. And so this issue of you can legislate a certain way of life, but you can't change the heart of people. Well, you can. And we've done that. Um, and the people we have not changed their hearts are really mostly poor, uneducated white people that are threatened by the fact that we're moving ahead and leaving us behind. I mean, uh, you know, Atlanta was was uh, roughly, uh, it was not quite a black majority when I was first elected. It was only 38% black. So I had to find a way to reach out to everybody. And, um, our problems were not just helping black people grow and get jobs and educated, but improving the the life, the schools, and the quality of training, particularly of our police. Um, and you can't just take a kid out of high school and give him a stick and a gun and a taser and expect him to act like he's got, you know, that, that he can can be the authority for the law of the land. It takes a tremendous amount of training, and it takes a tremendous amount of experience. And good police forces do that. But you don't get good police forces till people start voting in good mayors who appoint uh, wise young officers and who see to it that they get the training uh, and uh, the understanding that they need. And with policing, we also see that there's this code of blue sometimes in which it doesn't matter um, the race of the police officer, that once they become part of this club called a policing, then, you know, it's them versus us. And it's almost this militarization of policing where the civilian becomes the quote-unquote enemy. Well, and but that... That is something that we changed in Atlanta. And we made it, first place I said to the policeman, I said, look, you work for the citizens. You're not in charge of them. And we divided our community in the neighborhoods. And, and in a precinct, every precinct had to meet with the community at least once a quarter for the police, for the community to tell the policeman how they wanted to be protected. Mm. And 
it was it's it's community policing, which we, uh, well Lee Brown, who later was mayor of Houston, and who was police chief in New York, uh, was police chief when I became uh, mayor, and he and Maynard Jackson had already started that, but it had just started and. We kept it going and expanded it, and we're still doing that. We still require our law enforcement officers to meet with the community. Now, you saw the situation that happened in um, with a policeman pulling the child out of the chair. Yes. Well, we had policemen in our school, but they didn't wear uniforms. They wore police athletic league shirts. They were part of the recreation programs. They were part of the discipline, yes, but they didn't have guns and sticks, and and they didn't bully children. They they made friends with them. And the Police Athletic League in schools here in Atlanta was designed to prevent crime, not to, to bully and pick on kids. And so we were also discussing, Ambassador Young, about the role young people can play. And I, it, it, we, on the one hand, you have this tension between um, the society and the young person, and that tension is something, as we know, as age is old, um, as young people try to make their way and find their way in the world. And we want them to play a role in social justice. How do we help them to find that role to play? Well, for instance, uh, when the sit-in started in Atlanta, the presidents of the colleges didn't say don't demonstrate. They said before you demonstrate, sit down together and write out what it is you're demonstrating about and what is it that you want to change. And when the students got together, it took them a couple of weeks to do that. Then the presidents put a full-page ad in the paper, and everybody knew what it was about. Uh, and you cannot just have an emotional protest. Mm -hmm. the, uh, most, the most effective protest that I've been involved in in many places is uh, when you just sit in silence. Like one of the guys at, at University of Missouri just went on a hunger fast. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was there sitting on the campus fasting was more powerful than 50 people shouting. And so we, we have to learn that making the most noise isn't getting the, the question understood and isn't getting any change coming about. And you mentioned also in your early years with the why that um, that was very helpful to get along with other people. And so there's this phrase, of course, you know that, you know, you make your friends before you need them. Um, this, this sense that we need to have allies in this battle. Exactly. How do we best form these allies? How do they understand that there's a role for each one to play within this, this um, movement well, for social know, justice? Uh, when Dr. King was killed, we came right back to Atlanta, and there was a garbage worker strike on them. So we had to get in the garbage worker strike. We couldn't just, Dr. King had just given his life 
for garbage workers. And so, and so we got in the strike, and there were a group of preachers, and, you know, that sort of locked arms with the garbage workers, and we were blocking the trucks from coming out. And they sent for the police, and the police came, and they jumped out of their cars, and they pulled their sticks, you know, and getting ready to beat us up. And I said, excuse me, gentlemen, <laughs> I just want to let you know that these are city workers who are trying to get a three-step wage to improve their ability to take care of their families. Now, don't forget, you are city workers, too. If they get a raise, you might get one. <laughs> if you beat us up and we don't get a raise, you're not going to get one either. <laughs> and sometimes you have to, you have, to, I mean, you don't assume that the policeman is right. Uh, you got to, they don't know any better sometimes. And you have to, I, I, I made a practice of, one, always looking at the police officer's name and calling him by name. I so say they wear badges. And I'd always dress them very respectfully, but I always try to reason with them. And uh, it, uh, it, was, it, was, it was what made our movement successful. Uh, now, the guy, after I told him that, he still reached out, and I thought he was going to shake my hand. <laughs> and he still pulled me up and put me in jail. But that was all right. <laughs> because it was done respectfully, and he had to do his job, and I had to do my job. And um, a couple of days later, when we set up the negotiations with the mayor and the police, I mean, the garbage workers got a raise, the police officers got a raise, too, not quite as much as the garbage workers, because they were already getting paid more. But one of the things I did as mayor was raise the salaries of the police officers, because we didn't want, we wanted smart officers. We wanted officers to have some college training. We sent them back to get degrees and master's degrees in criminology. Because uh, crime is very complicated these days. And to have a bunch of kids, I mean, it was embarrassing to me to see in Ferguson with these policemen with all of this riot gear on. Mm -hmm. we, had a white, we had a white kid killed in an all-white neighborhood when I was mayor. And I did just what I thought, you know, I went out to see the parents, and I didn't take anybody with me but one woman police officer in plain clothes. And we went to see her. We apologized. We explained, you know, that the officer that shot her son was young and scared, and she then admitted that her son did have a knife and that he had a, gun, a, a drug problem and he'd been in trouble before. But just by my apologizing to the parents uh, and trying to explain because uh, there's no no city in the world where law enforcement is easy now and so I don't think I mean being against the police um, we got to be on the same side 
because uh, uh, I mean the truth of it is most of the black folk being killed are not killed by police. And that 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 issue of what's taking place within the black community with um, um, so-called black-on-black crime. We also know that within the white community, and, and many white people have made it appear as though they're all being killed by black people when we know that more whites kill other whites and, and the whole issue of white-on-white crime. How do we it's have... Yeah, we, we don't have a race problem as much as we have a violence problem. I mean, I think it's about 93% of the blacks who are killed are killed by other blacks, and I think it's 86% of the whites who are killed are killed by other whites. And so, and 53% of the of the guns fired in the home, uh, I mean, 53% of the accidents in the home come from people within the same family who have guns. So there's a violence problem that we haven't addressed, and it it we we have to take our time. We have to think this through, but it all goes back to if everybody had a job. See now, the problem in Ferguson, I thought, was not just Ferguson, but it was that uh, Budweiser was moving out of St. Louis. And and St. Louis is having serious economic problems. The problems we're having in Detroit. When I became mayor of Atlanta, there were six million people in Detroit and one million people in Atlanta. Now there are one million people in Detroit and six and a half million people in Atlanta. Wow. And but is is not race. Is governance and is thinking through the complicated problems of the world in which we live. Now, fortunately, I had a really good, tough uh, lawyer uh, preceding me uh, as mayor, Maynard Jackson. Mm -hmm. And Maynard understood, one, he understood the law, but more important, he understood money. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so when we built our airport, we wouldn't build it and less 25% of every contract was done by somebody, minority-owned company. Not just the dirt digging, but the bonds and the insurance and the design and the engineering. Every single part of that airport, you know, black people participated in. When I became mayor, I raised it to 35%. And when we won the Olympics, we incre- we increased it to 40%. And our airport now earns $38 billion a year, and it creates 400,000 jobs. And you've been listening to an encore presentation of Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. That was former Ambassador Andrew Young. One thing that Andrew Young said, and I've met him in person as well, is that racism is a psychological illness. Think about that. Racism is a psychological illness. It makes me have seated hate to hate skin, one or the other. 
it is a psychological illness. As you go forward, Sankofa, learn from the past, going into the future, figure out absence. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown. Show. Thank you for listening. Become a WEA Port Law. 995 And of course, I will see you on the radio. And at least half of all of that is black. And so. And that's got nothing to do. I mean, when I first talked to the when I, when I first talked to the Chamber of Commerce about being mayor, they said, "Well, what are you going to do? You Democrats always raise taxes." I said, "You can't raise taxes when nobody's got any money." And he said, "Well, what are you going to? What? How are you going to run the city?" I said, I'm going to run the city by making Atlanta the next great international city. And one of my banker friends said, where in the hell did that not come from? (laughs) And it never occurred to him. But we brought in business from all over the world into Atlanta. Uh, I went to Germany and uh, brought Lufthansa Airlines. And we brought the uh, airlines from Switzerland and Holland and Japan. All of those were places where people had money. And when they started flying into Atlanta, they realized that this was a good place to invest. And I would meet with everybody that wanted to invest. If you were coming to Atlanta to invest money or to start a business, you didn't need an appointment with the mayor. You just walk into the office, and I would stop what I was doing. And I would, you know, it didn't take but five or ten minutes, and I could get back to whatever else it was. But we put investors first, and I gave them my home number, and I gave them, we didn't have cell phones back then, but I gave them my direct line to my desk, and I said, look, if you have any problems, let me solve them. Don't complain about it. Well, I'm hoping that our Mayor de Blasio is listening or some member of his staff is listening to our program today because I also want to go back to the spiritual part of this vision because in discussing the the civil rights movement and strategies then and now, there was a spiritual part of social justice. And as a a minister um, and and uh, a member of SCLC and, and working with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, what spiritual component do you see that was there in the strategy for social justice that may be missing now? Well, it was either spirituality or insanity. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, we had, people don't realize that Martin Luther King never had a million dollars a year to work with. And we had maybe 50 people on a staff uh, at our largest, and then we had everybody else was volunteer. And uh, he used to say, you have to be certifiably insane to try to do what we're doing. He said, or you have to really have faith in God. And so it was faith in God because we weren't fully crazy. But it was, you know, it was kind of crazy to think that we could change Birmingham. That was the meanest city in the South. In the the 60s, 61 and 62, there were over 60 bombings 
of people's homes just for nothing. Fred Shuttlesworth's church was bombed three times in one year, and nobody was ever arrested, or nobody didn't even investigate it. So we went over there, and, um, you know, um, but we, we suddenly realized it was segregated because we were co- cooperating with segregation. Mm. So when we said to the black community, look, all we have to do is keep our money in our pockets. And for 90 days, nobody black and, and quite a few whites didn't spend anything, didn't buy anything but food and medicine. No clothes, no cars, no no nothing. No Christmas presents, no Easter presents. And when we shut down the economy, all of a sudden people were willing to sit down and let's see what we can do to change this so we can get your business back. And that was, I mean, everybody talks about the dogs and the fire hoses, but what really changed Birmingham was that we decided we were not going to finance segregation. And if they were going to put up black and white signs, we weren't going in there. And if they were not going to hire black people in in important jobs, we weren't going to shop there. And once they understood that, it changed pretty... It, in fact, Birmingham changed almost two years before the federal government changed. Everything the Birmingham business community agreed with us on in 1963 was against the law in Alabama, and George Wallace didn't say a word. And it wasn't until 1964 in July that the law changed. But we changed it in in May of uh, 1963. When 100 businessmen got together and signed an agreement with Martin Luther King and, and Reverend Shuttlesworth. That is... So amazing. I'm looking at my engineer right now. We're both saying that's a part of the movement, the history you know of it that's thing? rarely discussed. Well, because I wrote it in my book. But, you know, they they only did one publication of my book. And uh, none, of, none of us who wrote about what was really happening uh, and... I, I was. I'm still trying to tell our story. Uh, we have a, a, a film company that called Andrew Young Presents, and um, we make about four films a year, uh, trying to tell the story of what really happened. Because uh, even the, <clears throat> even the you know, distinguished white historians who've made a whole lot of money uh, telling what went on um, were not in the room. (laughs) Mm. And they didn't know what was really going on. They were writing from their research, and it's it's mostly accurate. But they got uh, influenced uh, by the FBI files and things like that, which was really mostly untrue and exaggeration. I mean, uh, not that we were saints, but we certainly weren't, you know, wild men crazy. Mm -hmm. 
And so the, the, in our last moments together, I wanted to ask you this question about in experiencing those um, unfair situations, the discrimination, the racism, um, being jailed so many times. Well, I was just jailed twice. <laughs> oh, that's but I, wanted, I got beat up a couple of times. And this, but I didn't, jail was okay. Jail was safe for me because uh, I, I ended up not being able to go to jail. I had to stay out in the streets and kind of keep things going. I always, you know, they always kidded me about not going to jail. I said, it's safer in jail than it is out here kitchen hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted, being beaten, these young people, as you expressed at University of Missouri, which is my alma mater, actually. And, mm -hmm. Well, uh, you can be proud of them. Well, I am very proud of them. The experiences that you go through, and they've, they've said that it's, it's more difficult to keep these feelings inside and, and deal with racism than to actually use that as energy to do something about um, social well, you know, injustice. When growing up, I, I was born in 1932. See, it was rough in LaSalle, and being in a predominantly white neighborhood with very few children, and they were all poor. Uh, my daddy started training me when I was four years old about how, I mean, you had to fight. Uh, you couldn't let people pick on you. Uh, but mostly you had to think. And he said, you never lose your temper in a fight. If you lose your temper in a fight and get emotional, you lose the fight. And he used to say, don't get, sm don't get mad, get smart. He said, when you start, when you lose your temper, you're going to lose your head. And even as a kid, he would box with me. And if I started swinging wild, he smacked me upside my head and said, <laughs> see, <laughs> you lose your temper, you lose your head. <laughs> and you are the author of A Way Out of No Way, the spiritual memoirs of Andrew Young. And the other one, the bigger burden on the civil rights movement is called an easy burden, and it it came from the the uh, Bible verse: "Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." And I always felt that uh, we were successful because we were being led where the Lord wanted us to go, and it always worked out, never as we planned it. Uh, but um, if we were faithful and if we were concerned about the needs, you know, and kind of organize the people, uh, and uh, but again, everybody says everybody was together then. That's not true. There were over 400 black churches in Birmingham, and only 14 of them would even let us have a meeting. See, so when Martin Luther King went to jail uh, to write the letter from the Birmingham jail, there were only four preachers with him, and only 50 others, 54 people went to jail. It wasn't a big crowd. Now, everybody took part in a boycott because it was easy not to spend your money. And... If you got caught going downtown spending your money, folks talked about you. <laughs> <laughs> 
We are having a wonderful conversation that, unfortunately... Now, you oh said you're goodness. from Missouri. I am from Kansas City. What's that? Where's the station? This station is in New York City. I, I was born and raised in the Midwest, and I've been living in New York for several decades now. And I was, uh, you know, in college at University of Missouri, Columbia, where those uh -huh. young people are fighting well, a good battle. They, they really. I think that's the best of the movements recently, because they were thoughtful, they were spiritual. And, you know, we took the time, the way we got students to go to jail, we, we organized the, the football team, the cheerleaders, the student government leaders on the campuses, and we sent them to jail on a Friday and promised to get them out on a, Saturday, on a Sunday so they could go back to school and, and say they had a good experience in jail. And, you know, some of us went with them. And jail became a prayer meeting, and more young people decided to change their lives going to jail uh, than they did in revivals. But they came back and they went to their schools, and they talked about what they learned in jail. And pretty much we organized the, well, I think over 5,000 students went to jail on one day uh, in Birmingham. And that, that literally shut the whole town down. This is civil rights, then and now, a riveting discussion with our elder, the wise, the wonderful, the minister, the congressman, the mayor, the ambassador, Andrew Young. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is appreciated by me and by all of our listeners. This is a show for history. Thank you, Dr. Okay, Young. and if you see my buddy Dave Dinkins or Charlie Rango, Dave, Dave was the one who helped me through college <laughs> at <laughs> Howard University. He was just coming back from the Marines, and I was a crazy young kid coming up from New Orleans. So he helped make a man out of me. So I always, I always consider him my big brother. So tell him hello for me. I will do that, sir. Thank and you. Charlie Wrangle looked out for me in the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay. All right. God bless you. Bless you. Hey, bye bye. bye.